Amen. Turn your copy of God's Word this morning to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is towards the end of your Bible, one of the latter books of Scripture. I plan this morning to begin our time by just thinking about life expectancy rates in the United States and the fact that since 1950, the life expectancy has gradually increased. Actually, it's significantly increased by a pretty high rate uh, since 1950. And the reality now is that life expectancy in the United States for a lady is around 81 years old. Men, our life expectancy is around 76 years old. Now, the curveball that I received this weekend was the reminder of why that disparity exists. See, Friday, I couldn't get my mower working and trying to figure out why it was working, and Pastor Mike gave me an idea, and so I went home, and after a service on Friday night, before service, I thought it might have been the battery, so I hooked up a battery charger to it, went home and tried what Mike had said. Mike was, unfortunately, was wrong, and said, well, I'm going to just try to crank it anyway, and I lowered the seat and started to sit on it to crank it. Well, I didn't take the charger off. And so as I start to crank it, I hear, you know, and I see flashes. And I look back, and there's flames shooting out from under the seat, and there's smoke boiling out. And I I would say my face in that moment was probably priceless. I jumped off the mower and jerked the seat up as quick as I could, pulled the, the charger off, and, you know, I'm looking, and there's three gas tanks about five feet away, (laughs) full of gas. So that's why, ladies and gentlemen, there's a five-year disparity between (laughs) men and women and their life expectancy. My wife would never have done that. She would have taken it loose and then cranked it. Well, here's the reality, is that our life expectancy continues to increase. It continues to get better. But we're not satisfied with that. We continue to want it to get longer and longer and longer. And so we see everywhere advertised, and I'm not, not being negative about this. I know some in here use the same thing, but we see anti-aging cream, right, which helps our complexion, helps our skin. It doesn't really prevent aging, though, does it? But we see that as a growing industry. You can go online and you can search the Google Calico Project. The Google Calico Project is a a project focused on learning how to expand life expectancy. How do we we expand the time that we live? Their, Their statement on their website is this, we are tackling aging, one of life's greatest mysteries. We want to live. We're focused on extending life and avoiding death. Why is that? Why is it? The reason is, is that We're created to live. We're created to live. Life is natural to us. It is how we're wired. It's what we long for. Death is unnatural. Death is not what we were created for. So this morning we gather and and we gather in this room and, and many of us, most of us are believers. We're followers of Christ. We're those who truly rejoice that Christ is risen. He's risen indeed and we rejoice in the risen Savior who lives and has given us eternal life. 
But others in here sit today and you've come, it's Easter and it's what we do, it's what we should do, it's what we do as tradition as our families. And you gather today and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, you're not one who would profess that Christ is risen. But no matter who it is, whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever here today, we share this common longing for life, a common desire to live. We want to live. But we also share common hardships. We share common struggles, a struggle that life is hard, that the situations of life, the the pains of our bodies, the relational brokenness that we experience, the despair that we see in the world can bring great depression and great despair in our own lives. And we share this common struggle that life is hard. But we also share not only a common desire to live and a common struggle that life is hard, but we also share a very common reality that for all of us, death is real. It is not what was intended. It is not natural, but it is real. We will all face death, no matter how hard we try to avoid it, no matter how hard we try to extend life, no matter how hard we even try to ignore it, death comes upon us all. So in light of these realities, in light of these things that we share in common today, a a common longing to live, a a common reality that, that life is hard, a common struggle, and the common realization that death is real and death awaits us. It is particularly important that we gather on this day of all days to celebrate Christ, who we just sang, death in vain tried to hold him. Death in vain, because death could not defeat him. Christ arose, Christ lives, and so we gather today to worship him and to consider the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, God, many coming to celebrate the resurrection of Christ our Lord, and God, others here who have come because it's Easter Sunday, and God, no matter the case, God, I'm thankful for each one who is here, and I trust that God, you have brought each one for your purpose as a display of your goodness and your grace to each one. And so, God, I ask that you would bless our time in your word this morning. God, would you move powerfully in each one of our lives. Draw us close to you. Do a great work among us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. When Peter writes his letter, you'll notice if, you're, if you look in your copy of God's word in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes his letter, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He's writing a letter to the church, and if you gather this morning, you're not familiar with the writings in the New Testament. Many of the writings are indeed letters from the apostles to the church to encourage them, to spur them on, to instruct them, to write of their longing to see them. And Peter writes, when he writes his letter, he's writing to a church that is scattered, a church that is being persecuted, a church that is suffering, a church that is going through a difficult time in their lives. And he's writing to encourage them, to spur them on in thinking about what is the work of the Lord, what has God done in their lives, and what is he calling them to. 
And so he writes to the church, and I want you to hear how he begins his letter here in verse 3 of chapter 1. The word of God says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're going to stop there in in verse 5. I would encourage you later to to go on and read the rest of of chapter 1 and even the rest of the letter. It's a beautiful letter. But for the sake of time this morning, we're going to just look at verses verses 3 to 5, and particularly verse 3 this morning. You'll notice that that Peter begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And many of your English translations will have an exclamation mark there. It's a call to worship from Peter. He is compelling. He's calling them to exalt the Lord. And the reason for this is that when we remember the power and the acts, the works of God, it should always lead us into worshiping him. Christians that are gathered here today, it is absolutely right that we gather and we sing and we rejoice and we exalt our Lord. It is absolutely right is what we should do. And particularly, we should do that in light of his mercy that he's shown us, in light of of singing praises unto him for saving us. That's what Peter says. Why? Why do we bless God? Why do we praise God? Why do we worship God? Why? Why? It's because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. According to his mercy, we worship because he saved us. We worship because he's shown mercy in our lives. He's done this not according to anything that we've done. You who are believers in here, you know this, and we need to constantly be reminded of that, that we gather and we praise and we exalt the Lord not because of something we did. It's not because of who we are or what we have or any skill set, what we know. But it's according to his great mercy. The reality is, is that everyone in here stands guilty before God, deserving of punishment for our sins. But God in his great mercy has shown love and grace to us. I'm reminded of the, the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. He says, but God being rich in mercy rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Alive together. We are alive in Christ. Why are we alive in Christ? How can we be alive in Christ? Well, it's because Christ lives. That's why we can be alive in Christ. In Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, Paul speaks of God's great mercy again. He says that he saved us not because of works done by us, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's according to God's mercy. Now, I want you to hear again, in light of what we're looking at today, what he goes on to write. He says, it's according to God's own mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. We are saved unto hope for eternal life. And this is due to God's mercy. Not due to our works. Not due to our knowledge. Not due to our merits. But it's due to God's mercy. 
Later in Peter, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, uh, Peter describes us as those who once had not received mercy, but now who have received mercy. So those of you who are gathered today and you're believers, that, that is how we are described. We are described as those who at one time had not received mercy, but now we have indeed received mercy by God the Father. He has shown us mercy. Why? How does he show us mercy? By causing us to be born again. God's great mercy is demonstrated in saving us from our sins. Listen, that that word there, mercy, is is the Greek word that translates, is the Greek word when when they wrote the Greek translation of all the scriptures, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek. When they write, they put the whole of scriptures into Greek. When they did that, the Greek word here for mercy is what translates the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word called hesed, the covenant love of God. That's what he's describing here, the covenant love of the Lord. It's God's faithfulness to keep his promises to do what he said he was going to do for his people. That's what he's talking about, God's mercy, it's his purpose, his goodwill, his good pleasure, his good grace to act in covenant-keeping love and mercy toward us who believe, his people. There's the mercy of God, and we rejoice in that. We rejoice in that. But the reality is, as we already said, that some of you sitting in here today, you are not Christians. And, and you know this. Even if somebody sitting beside you doesn't know it, you know it. You know it in your heart of hearts. We all come, and I can't look out and go, oh, Christian, non-Christian, Christian, non-Christian. I, I can't do that, all right? I see a a body of people seated before me. But you know, in your heart, you know whether you're a believer or not. And some gathered here today will say, I'm not a believer. And you need to know that the supreme demonstration of God's great mercy and his great love is the sending of Jesus Christ for you to die on the cross for your sins. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is the demonstration of his love, of his mercy in sending Jesus Christ while we were in sin. We were dead in sin. We were rebels against him and he sent Christ to die for us. And so you need to know, we want you to know this morning, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, we want you to know that while we share this common struggle, we share the, the reality that we want to live, we long to live, we share the common reality that life is hard and death is real, we also come to you and we want you to know the good news that the God who both created life and conquered death has made a way for you to be saved. He has made a way for you to know the reality and the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he says later in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that's why Paul writes these words. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Now, that's important for us to hear that this morning. Why? Because the resurrection is a core doctrine. It's a core aspect of our belief. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, do you believe in Christ? The good news is that you don't have to earn your way to heaven. The good news is that you can't earn your way to heaven. And God, knowing that, sent 
forth Christ, sent Jesus, his only son, to live a perfect life, something that none of us could do. I can't do it. You can't do it. To live a perfect life and to die on the cross in our place, to be buried, and to raise again from the grave. And he has promised that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That all who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead would be saved. And so the good news for you this morning, if you're sitting here and who knows where you're coming from, what your background is, what you bring to the table today, the good news is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because all that matters is what God did in sending Christ to die for your sins. And what matters is do you trust him? Will you turn from your sins and trust him in faith? That is what matters. That's what matters. So would you do that this day? Would you do that this day? That's the question, the good news to put before you today on this resurrection day. Now, we look at back to 1 Peter 1.3, you'll notice He says he's caused us to be born again. And there's two things that being born again, being saved, saves us unto. What are two things this results in? The first thing is it results in seeing saved to a living hope. You see that in your your copy of God's word here in verse 3? To a living hope. The second thing is in verse 4. To an inheritance. There's two things that we need to think upon as believers, as followers of Christ that those who are saved, we're saved to a living hope and we're saved to an, in, an inheritance. And not just an inheritance, but it's one that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Now, for the sake of time this morning, we're just going to look at this living hope, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. I want you to be reminded of this morning. Is that our hope is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believer, our hope is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection secures our salvation and it gives us hope. Now, I know there's some in here that would look and go, do you really believe in the resurrection? Yes. Yes, we do. Well, well, well surely you, you mean it, it's... It's just a spiritual or a symbolic resurrection. No. Nope. We don't. No. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, as Christians, we don't come about and just go, hey, this is some symbolic piece of literature that we can symbolically have life. No, we believe that this is the historical account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life and died death for us and was truly killed and truly buried and truly rose again. That is what we believe. That's what the Bible testifies. The Bible testifies that that the Christian, the follower of Christ, believes in the literal, historic, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That God truly rose him from the grave. That he died a physical death and he truly rose to newness of life, eternal life. And he truly grants life to those who believe. When Peter writes this, he writes it as a statement of fact. Peter is spoken of or is acting and speaking as an apostle. And he writes this as just a a matter of fact. You need to remember, maybe if you're not familiar with Scripture, you need to know who Peter is, and we need to, who are familiar with Scripture, need to remember who Peter is. 
Peter is one of the apostles. He was known as one who perhaps is quite, quite brash and quick to talk. He's one that quickly throws his foot in his mouth and enjoys doing it time and time again. And, and we can all kind of chuckle when we read about Peter, right? Because he does these things and we go, well, that makes me feel better because I do that too, right? And, and that's just who Peter is. He's quick to talk. And, and Peter's the one who was bold. He's the one that, that cuts the guy's ear off when they come to arrest Jesus. He's quick to act. And he's ready. He's ready to fight for Jesus. But then just a, a few hours later, what does he do? He, he denies even knowing Christ. Three times he denies it. He's like, I don't even know him. I, I've never seen the guy. I don't know. But then we, we read what, what Pastor Mike read in Luke 24, that, that Peter rose and ran to the tomb when Mary and the others came and they told him, hey, the, the, the Lord's not there. He's risen. And Peter's like, really? Come on. No way. And he thinks about it, and he goes, okay, I'm going to check this out. And he runs to the tomb. Luke 24, 12 says Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Marveling. So the one who denied Christ is now marveling at what Christ had done, that he had risen from the grave. He witnessed the crucifixion, and now he witnessed him being buried, and now he's witnessed these, this empty tomb. And so Peter writes, the one who had denied Christ writes boldly, as a matter of fact, that we are born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he boldly proclaims. He boldly goes on to preach in Acts. He preaches sermon after sermon. And the testimony of Peter, every time he refers back to the resurrection of Christ. In Acts 2, 22 to 24, we read this at the beginning, but he, he preaches, he shares the gospel at the end. What is, how does he sum it up? How does he kind of put the stamp, the final statement? He says that, that God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Next chapter, Acts chapter 3, Peter addresses the people in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. He says, you killed the author of life. Now, there's a bold statement. Standing in front of people who are opposed to him, who are questioning him, who are skeptical of him, who are mocking him and scoffing at him. And he looks at him and he says, you killed the author of life. Like you, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead, Peter said. God had raised him from the dead. In Acts 4, he's preaching again, or he, actually he's talking, he's not preaching. Acts, um, uh, Peter and John are taken before the council. And Peter boldly proclaims that they are ministering Here's what the word says, what Peter says. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. There it is again. Peter's very blunt. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This is a matter of fact for Peter. An apostle who witnessed the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. You see, it's just a matter of fact. And now he writes this letter to the people there and he writes to encourage them in the hope that they have because life was hard and death is real. And he writes to encourage them that in the face of difficulty, in the face of trial, in the face of tragedy, in the face of persecution, in the face of all the questions and the scoffing and the mocking, in the face of all that, you have living hope in Christ. You have living hope. In the face of looming death, you have living hope in Christ. There was no question in Peter's mind. There was no question. He knew the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Did it astound him when it happened? Absolutely. Did it, did it just blow his mind? Yes. 
Did it forever change his life and the lives of all the apostles? Absolutely. But you need to understand that that life change is one of the most compelling pieces of history. It's one of the most compelling evidences for the resurrection. That you have a, a group of followers who, who at the crucifixion and death are, are left fearful and they're left confused. And they're not boldly standing there going, look, he's been crucified, he's going to rise. They're not doing that. They're cowering. They're, they're, they're confused. They're, they're, they're grieving. But then when, when Jesus rises from the grave, there's this radical life change. They go from, from those who don't have hope, those who are grieving, those who are fearful, those who are in, in, in hiding pretty much, to those who are boldly standing before men and saying, you killed him, but God raised him. The boldness, the life change is amazing. Now, listen, I know there are those gathered today who would say, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just skeptical of this. I don't know. I mean, are you really raised from the grave? I, listen, I get it. I get it. And it's okay to be skeptical. It's not as though we walk out every day and see someone raised from the grave. This isn't something that just happens all the time. It occurs every day. So I get it if you, you question. I, I've been there. I've... I've had to wrestle through that and go, wow, is it true? Is it true? By the grace of God, the power of God, and the goodness of God, he has testified through his word, through history, that it is indeed true. It is indeed true. And you need to know, if you're skeptical, if you just have questions, that the, 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 the evidence for the veracity, the truthfulness, the, the historicity of the resurrection is astounding. And if you go and you do the research, you'll see it. Time and time again, it's been sought to disprove it. And time and time again, it's not done. His body was not stolen. A, a Roman guard of 10 or more soldiers would never have allowed that. It wasn't stolen. His, his disciples did not hallucinate. Mass hallucinations don't happen. They don't happen. And even if you would say, well, they, uh, maybe it is, it doesn't explain the fact that the tomb's empty. See, they didn't hallucinate. Jesus wasn't unconscious or, or swooning. Just looking like he was dead. No, the, the Romans were experts at death. They knew how to bring it about, how to ensure it, how to make sure it truly happened. Jesus really died. And if he was just swooning, there's no way he gets out and rolls a stone away and then beats a Roman guard. It's illogical. It doesn't even make sense to think that. His body wasn't put in the wrong tomb. Both his followers and the Romans knew where his body had been laid. That would be equivalent to me going and putting somewhere something in the back property and coming back and then going back and going, oh, now where did I put that? No. Jesus miraculously and literally rose from the grave. He lives. He lives. And we need to know and we need to remember that at the end of the day, as Christians, our hope is 
anchored in his bodily, historic, literal resurrection from the grave. Our hope is anchored in that. It gives us a living hope. And you need to know, if you're skeptical today and you're questioning, you just wonder, here's what you need to know, is that the call to trust Christ is not one to say, let's trust Christ and you just leave your brain at the door. Don't be a thinking Christian. Don't think about it. It's not that. It's not that at all. It's a call to look at the testimony of Scripture, to look at the testimony, the the recorded history of the life of Christ. Look at the history of Scripture. Look at the testimony. Look at the evidence of history. Look at the evidence surrounding the circumstances. Look at the testimonies, the evidence. Look at the Scriptures and decide what you will place your faith in. Will you place your faith in the one who is victorious over death? Listen, it is always going to come down to faith. Always going to come down to faith. Scripture is very clear about that. That it's by faith we're saved. Not by works, but by faith. There will always be an element of faith. But you need to know that that applies to every person sitting in here, whether you have faith to follow Christ or you have faith to follow something else. It will always come down to faith. So if you say, well, you're a person of faith, but I'm not, then I would say you're deceived and you're mistaken. It will always come down to faith. Christianity is not blind faith. It is not blind faith. So I would challenge you, look to the testimony of Scripture. Look to the evidence that God has put before us and decide you this day who you will serve. Now, he says that that hope comes through the resurrection, right? The resurrection brings living hope to the believers. This is the, the beauty of the resurrection, that, that what is indeed a historic event anchors our faith, and it gives living hope for our lives today as we live in light of eternity. That's one of the great beauties of a Christian, that we live with certain hope. What, what does he mean by living hope? What does he, what does he mean by this idea that it is, it is living it, when, he, when he writes this and he writes to, that it is living hope, living is a description of the hope. It's not hope, it's, living is not the object of the hope, it's the description. It modifies what type of hope it is. It's a, a hope that lives, it endures, it lasts. That means that it does not falter when life is hard. It does not fail when skeptics mock. It is not shaken in the faith of death, or face of death. And it is not extinguished by the failures of sin. It is living because Jesus lives. It is unshakable because Jesus lives. It is secure because Jesus lives. It is hope. It is living hope. It is hope that answers the modern questions of of philosophy, of existential philosophy that would say, you know what, Our, our lives have no meaning. We just kind of exist. And we don't really have meaning. If there is meaning, it's just kind of what I would give my life for meaning. It's the meaning that I would generate. Other than that, there's just no meaning. We just live. And it leads us to despair. And there's people all around our day, all around our world, all around our community, even probably sitting in here that live in this idea that life has no meaning. But the resurrection, the living hope of Christ means, yes, our lives do have meaning. So the seeming despair and vanity of life that some of you live in is due to the fact that you're missing the reality of the life that is in Christ for those who walk in Christ. Jesus loved you. He gave himself up for you. He rose from the grave to have eternal life with you. Galatians 2.20, uh, Paul talks about that. 
He talks about that, that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him because Christ gave himself for him and loved him. What a beautiful statement. So the idea that, that life just has no meaning, there's no purpose to life, is a lie of our day. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates, it reveals the value of life itself. And we look at Scripture, we see that the testimony of Scripture is Jesus teaches that, that he has come to give us abundant life, that we are to be those who are fruit-bearing, that we are to live fruitful lives. Our lives have great purpose and meaning in existence. And the idea, on a side note, the idea that not only is life meaningless, but our bodies are bad or evil or meaningless as well, that teaching is out there, that again is a lie of our day. How do we know that? Why would we say that? Well, well, because Jesus' bodily resurrection shows that the body is important. God made it. God made our bodies. It's good. They're valuable in his sight. Listen, Peter knew and knows and wants us to know, we need to know from this passage that the Christian possesses hope, hope through the resurrection. And this hope has great bearing on our lives today. It should influence the way we live when we walk out of these doors and we walk through whatever Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday hold coming into next Sunday. It should influence our lives. It should influence our lives. That's why Peter writes. If you look later in the, in the passage or in the, the epistle, the letter from Peter, he, he writes of hope three other times because he knows that they need it. In 1 Peter 1.13, he says, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the return of Christ. Set your hope fully on the return of Christ. Well, how's Christ going to return? It's because he lives. He lives. He reigns. And he will return. In 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21, he again teaches the same thing. He talks about how we were ransomed from our feudal ways, inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold. He's, he's saying you don't earn your salvation, but instead we were ransomed with the blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. We are those with hope. We live with hope. It is part of our lives. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, listen, you need to be prepared to give an answer for what? The hope you profess. It is because we live with hope. We live as those who are hoping in Christ. We have this living hope that we've been saved into. It's living because it is a hope that endures. Because Jesus is alive and endures. He is eternal. Because he endures. His life is eternal. Then our hope is anchored in him and it is living. Listen, I would just say to you this. That this is what distinguishes Christian hope from the hope that an unbeliever might have. It's not as though, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, it's not as though you cannot have any hope. That's not the case. You can have hope. But what you need to understand is your hope is not living. Your hope is temporary. Your hope will come to an end. You see, money runs out. Trends change. Causes end. People die. Abilities fade. And hope ends. So all of those things, if you're hoping in something, it will change. 
if you're hoping in a counseling method, that method will change. Over 300 different answers for how you should counsel someone now. That hope will fade. If you're hoping in a philosophical system, that philosophy will change. If you're hoping in something about yourself, it will end. See, outside of Christ, hope will not endure. But in Christ, hope endures because Jesus is alive. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is living and ruling and reigning and acting and working. And so hope is alive. And we have been saved unto a living hope. Now what, if it's living, right, then what is that hope we have? What is the hope? Now, I want to just leave you with three, three hopes that we have to end our time today. Here it is. The hope we have is that sin is not fatal, faith is not futile, and death is not final. Sin is not fatal, death is not futile, and death is not final. That's the hope that we have as Christians. You see, first, sin is not fatal. Paul wrote in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin is not fatal. The interesting thing is, we don't have time to look at this, but the interesting thing is that that statement by Paul saying that, you know what, the wages, what you deserve for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, right? That, that sin is not fatal for those who place their trust in Christ. That statement in Romans 6.23 is the crowning statement of Romans chapter 6 where the first 14 verses, Paul talks about the life that we have through Christ's resurrection. It's through Christ's resurrection. He talks about that we have been raised to life, that we've died to sin, we've died death to sin with Christ, and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. We live in Him. And because of that resurrection, we have this living hope and we have this crowning statement that death is not fatal. That the gift of God is great. It is eternal life through Christ our Lord. The, the cross, when we look at the fact that, that Jesus died on the cross, and we look at that, the cross says that if you trust Jesus Christ, your sin has been paid for. The living hope of the resurrection is that the resurrection says that Jesus' payment for sin was absolutely sufficient it was sufficient it did what was necessary so sin is not fatal because Christ lives and he reigns and he saves those who look to him and place their faith in him the second thing faith is not futile faith is not futile look at 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15 we won't spend a lot of time here but if you want to just flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 you want to flip left in your Bible a few books 1 Corinthians 15 is this incredible chapter of Paul where he writes about the power and the significance and the meaning and the endurance of the resurrection. And here we find out that faith is not futile. Why is it not futile? Because of the resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14, it says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it's true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they, they just perished. If in Christ we have no, or we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Do you, do you hear what Paul's saying? Now he's saying, listen, the, the resurrection changes all that. If, if he's not been risen, if he's not living, then this is all a waste of time. It doesn't matter how nice your Christmas bow tie and your Christmas dress are and how great lunch is, it's a waste of time. And your faith, the fact that you would say, I live in faith and I trust the Lord, it's just a waste of time, it's vain, it's futile. There's no point in it. And you're still in your sins. Remember, we just talked about that. That, that sins are not, sin is not fatal. It's not in it. It's not the end of it. But Paul says here, if, listen, if it's not for the resurrection, then it is. You're still in your sins. And the wages of sin is what? Death. They are fatal. You see, we stopped short, didn't we? Some of you have already read ahead. You know what it says. Verse 20. Paul says, but in fact. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The reality is that Christ has risen. So faith is not futile. It is not vain. It is not worthless. In fact, it is of all worth. It is great worth. It is of great value. Because our faith rests not in the ways of man. It rests not in the philosophy of man. It rests not in something that I can buy or purchase or earn or achieve. All of that will burn. All of that will end. My faith rests in Christ who endures, who reigns, who lives. And because my faith is in Christ, it is not in vain. It is not futile. It is in the one who lives. And because it's in the one who lives, number three, death is not final. Death is not final. So we hope in Christ because we know he's paid the price for our sins and they're not fatal, but we've been given the gift of eternal life. We hope in Christ because we know that our faith rests in him. And so it's not in vain. And we hope in Christ because he has conquered death and it is not final. It is not final. It is not final. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, down towards the end of the chapter we said at the very beginning of the sermon today, what do we say? That death is real. It's real and it awaits. But what we need to know and the hope we have in Christ is that it is real, but it is not final. It's not final. Verse 55, we read this. We'll start in verse 54. The imperishable puts on the, or the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has defeated death. Paul says here, he, he says, the sting of death is sin. It's that which brings punishment, condemnation, brokenness, and wrath. And he says that, that this, this brokenness of sin, it shows the power of sin which is in the law. The law shows the power of itself and showing that none of us can perfectly obey. None of us are righteous. All of us have rebelled against him. All of us have fallen short of God's holy standard. 
All of us have rebelled. But the victory of Christ is in the resurrection over both of these. That he has paid the price of sin. That he obeyed the law perfectly in his life. He paid the price of sin fully, right? Fully on the cross through his death. And he defeated death victoriously by rising from the grave. Why are we so trying so hard to avoid death? Because we were created to live. But the truth is that the only way we live and have the eternal, abundant, everlasting life that we long to have is it's through trusting Jesus Christ as Lord confessing that with our mouth and believing in our heart that God raised us from the dead. Death is not final because Jesus is alive. And we rest in that today. Theologian Edmund Clowney said this, Our hope in Christ is anchored in the past. Jesus arose. It remains in the present. Jesus lives, and it is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. I, I hope you know and you understand the living hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ. When you live with that living hope, there is a difference in your life. It changes you. And I would plead with you today that if you're not a follower of Christ and you're here for any reason, whatever it is, I don't know, I'm just glad you're here. I would plead with you today that you would turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That you would know that because our Savior lives, that He is our hope in life and death. We live in hope, in living hope, every day of life, Christian. Every day of life, we live with living hope. And when we look down the road and we look upon death, Christ is still our hope because He lives. Let's pray and let's stand and let's sing. God, we give you praise today for the power you displayed. The power you displayed over death that death in vain tried to hold Christ our Lord. But God, the testimony of Scripture is that it was not able to do so. In the face of the living, eternal God, death is weak and powerless. And God, we are thankful for that today because we are weak and frail. But God, our hope is in Christ today. God, I pray for those here today who aren't believers. They don't follow you. God, I thank you that they came this morning. God, I pray that you would bless them. God, speak to them powerfully by your spirit and through your word. Do a great work in their lives, we pray. But God, for the rest of us, we rejoice in you, Lord Jesus. Our beautiful, wonderful, 
reigning, living Savior and Lord. We rejoice in you. And we confess that you, Lord Jesus, are our hope in life and death. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.